Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Well, one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited in my life is the Portland Head Lighthouse in Portland, Maine. That may be surprising to you who have been to Venice and Cape Town and all these other gorgeous places, but if you'd been there, I think you'd probably remember it. Over a decade ago, I visited there at sunset, and as the sun went down behind the surface of the water, it cast its golden rays up on this 80-foot white lighthouse. And I just, I, as I took pictures looking out on the water, I was just flabbergasted by the beauty of this structure. And as I looked out on the ocean, about 100 yards out, there was a huge rock in the water. And painted on the rock, it said this, Annie C. McGuire, shipwrecked here, Christmas Eve, 1886. I looked back at those pictures this past week, and I, I just realized how impressive that lighthouse is. Now, ships had crashed, storms had raged, but over, for over 200 years now, the Portland Head Light has stood fast. We continue this morning to think about Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. So if you'll remember, Paul was one of the first missionaries of the early Christian church, and on his second missionary journey, had brought the gospel of Christ to the city of Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece, Thessaloniki. That visit had not ended super well, if you look at Acts 17. So Paul had ended up having to hightail it out of town because of a riot uh, that developed against him. He went on to the next town, which was Berea, had again been forced out by opposition to his message. And here, in this letter, he's in Corinth, a city about 200 miles away from Thessalonica. And he's writing to the new church he has just founded in that city. And this morning, we come to chapter 3 that Ashley has just read for us. And here, Paul continues to talk about the concept of standing firm in suffering. So as we consider this text, let's just see two basic points. In verses 1 through 5, let's see the threat of affliction. The threat of affliction. And then in verses 6 through 10, let's see the faith of the Christian. The faith of the Christian. So first, the threat of affliction. So at the end of chapter 2, Paul has just been talking about the joy he has in this newfound church in Thessalonica, about his great desire to see them, his understanding of how they have undergone suffering for their faith. And, 
And here in chapter 3, he just continues to talk about his great soul desire to see them again. He says there in verse 1, he can bear it no longer. He's completely torn apart by anxiety and uncertainty regarding their welfare. I mean, he had worked there and preached the, for the gospel for maybe a few weeks, and then he had had to leave in such a, a hurry, escaping the city secretly by night. And there was no such thing as just pulling up your iPhone and checking your friends in Thessalonica on their Facebook profile and seeing if they're okay and, or texting them, are, are you okay? Are you still believing in Jesus? His communication had been completely cut off from these new Christians. So he's constantly burdened in concern for them. Were they continuing in their faith? Were they succumbing to persecution? His desperate desire to know their spiritual state leads to his willingness in verse 1 to be left alone in Athens. Uh, he parts ways with Timothy, who goes to check on the Thessalonians. We see here again what we've been seeing throughout this short letter so far, that Paul's love for the church is indeed sacrificial love. He's willing to go it alone just so he can be sure this new church is persevering in faith. Remember from the end of chapter 2 how intimately Paul connected his faith to the faith of the Thessalonians. It was almost a symbiotic faith feeding off each other. So he called himself their spiritual father, their spiritual mother, and he took great joy in them and looked forward to presenting them to Jesus when Jesus came back. His faith remained connected to theirs in a deep way. So he just needed to discern whether they were enduring affliction. So he sends Timothy. He's, he's Paul's brother. He's God's co-worker in the gospel. Paul says, I will do without you for a few months. Just go to Thessalonica. See what's happened. And, and look there in verse 2 about why he sent Timothy exactly. To establish and exhort the Thessalonians in their faith. So Paul had had to leave in a hurry and he knew that their fledgling faith needed rooting, it needed grounding, it needed establishment, that he wasn't able to stay and provide for them. So he sends Timothy to further strengthen their faith. You see there at the end in verse 10 that he wants to go himself and supply what's lacking, that he didn't get to teach them at the beginning. He also sends Timothy to exhort them, to encourage them. Why? Verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul was sincerely worried that the Thessalonians would be deceived by the different messages around them and would apostatize from their faith. That is, reject Christ, go back to who they were before. He was so concerned that they would get all excited about the gospel, but then in the face of great opposition, give it up and turn back. And so this mission for Timothy is really a follow-up mission. What has happened in Thessalonica? Because you know, Paul says there that he knew afflictions were coming for them. Verse 3, he, they should have known this as well. Uh, he had told them that they were all destined for persecution for their faith. And lo and behold, those persecutions had come. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6, we see that the Thessalonians had received the word, how? In much affliction. And again in chapter 2, verse 14, they had suffered from even their own countrymen, tribulations had indeed come about for them. In verse 4, we see Paul had told them this repeatedly. He had kept on telling them that suffering was coming for them if they were to be faithful to Christ. And now that it's come to pass, he's proved right. They shouldn't have been surprised. But he's still worried. I mean, have they caved? What if that persecution just proved too hard to endure? 
And dear church, we're reminded here of one of the hard truths of Scripture. The Christian life is a costly life. To be a Christian means to be one who will suffer rejection from the world. Now, of course, everyone who lives, Christian or not, experiences hardship in life. That's part of living in a world that's rebelled against God and is under the curse of sin. I'm not talking necessarily about the general suffering we all experience in a sin-sick world. Here, Paul is focusing on suffering that is specifically for the Christian, even specifically related to persecution. I think in some way we can think of our suffering as Christians as all being persecution, as we're tempted within and tempted without. But here he's looking specifically at persecution from the outside, being targeted for our faith in Christ. Uh, that will take different forms for each of us, but we can be sure, Christian, each one of us, that suffering will always, until we die or Jesus comes back, be part of what it means for us to be united to him by faith. So Romans 8, verse 16. I've been meditating on this passage. I'd encourage you to do the same. Paul writes, we are children of God. Good news, right? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Even better. This sounds like a great life, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, part of being God's child, part of being made alive in Christ is to suffer like Christ, to suffer with Christ, to die with Christ and be raised with Christ, to suffer with Christ and then be glorified with Christ. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you will experience affliction as part of your new identity, as part of being united to Jesus Christ. Because who was Jesus? He was the man despised and rejected by men as the prophet Isaiah says. For us as Christians, suffering will be part of our existence. But listen, suffering will also be part of our assurance. Suffering will be part of what marks us off as true followers of Christ. You remember those apostles in the beginning of Acts who were beaten for the gospel and went away, not reconsidering their faith, but rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul had explained these sorts of things to the Thessalonians, but he still wondered, would they be deceived after all? Would his work be in vain? And church, we also must not be deceived in this matter of persecution and suffering. It may seem distant from us. Uh, part of the reason we put those Smyrna prayer guides in our bulletins every week is so that it's not so distant. Some of us had known those who have suffered physically for their faith. Some of us, even now in our careers, suffer in part because of our faith. And all of us experience the temptations and bombardments of the evil one against us. That is indeed persecution for our faith. Opposition and affliction in our lives because of our faith in Christ, though, must never cause us to doubt God's goodness or the truth of the gospel. It's not a surprise. I mean, even Jesus himself promised we would face opposition for his name's sake. One of the most comforting verses in all of scripture are Jesus' words in John 16, as he looks at his disciples who are troubled, learning that he's going to die. And he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Even the Apostle Paul in another letter to Timothy in the New Testament would echo those sentiments. He would say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. So church, don't forget the cost that comes with being a Christian. When you share the gospel with others around you, don't forget to include in them, in that message, an alert That being a Christian means sacrificing things that you love. Being a Christian means turning away from the world and turning to Christ. You remember the Apostle Paul's story himself. Before coming to know Jesus, he himself was a successful Jewish leader. He was respected by all, admired by many, highly educated. But do you remember what he was willing to give up to get Christ? Philippians chapter 3, he says, he counted everything as loss. He suffered the loss of all things, his status, his position, his religious pedigree, everything, and counted all of that as rubbish, as trash, as poop is really what that word means, in order to gain Christ. And so as he's writing to the Thessalonians here, he's not, as, as one author puts it, thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church will then return to normality. No, the new normal for Paul, the new normal for the Thessalonians would mean continual persecution. They had identified themselves with Christ and they would suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're considering what it means to be a Christian or maybe you're a a teenager who's been taught the Bible but you're thinking like, am am I supposed to buy into that for myself? Other people are telling me it's not the right move. Or you're just thinking, what would it mean for me as I grow up into adulthood to follow Christ? Let me just tell you, it's going to cost you. Being a Christian will cost you. The great Liverpool bishop of the last two centuries ago, J.C. Ryle, puts it this way. True Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. So friend, if you become a Christian, if you claim to follow Christ, you will expect opposition from the world. And so the next logical question for you to be asking yourself is, is that worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus if that means suffering the the ridicule of the world? Is it worth it to give up everything that you've tried to build up, to build up your reputation, your pride in front of unbelievers, to just squander that and gain Christ? Well, Ryle continues, and he says, What sane man or woman can doubt that it is worth any cost to have the soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew think nothing of casting overboard even the precious cargo. When a limb is injured, a man will submit to any severe operation and even to amputation to save life. So surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. So a friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so grateful that you're with us this morning. And, and we just want you to know that we understand 
that while following Christ will mean looking weird and saying no to things that look fun and certain pleasures of the world, we firmly believe that when Jesus comes back, which he will, it will have been worth every last moment of temporary suffering. Jesus will be worth it all. Why? Well, the gospel news is that we were all sinners. We were God's enemies. We deserved his judgment. But when we could do nothing to save ourselves, he sent his son Jesus to take our punishment in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't just kind of a historical, really inspiring act of sacrificial love. Plenty of men and women have done that. No, when Jesus died on the cross, that was actually a a legal act. A legal act of mercy where God, the judge of the world, saw his perfect son and put on him all the sin of those who would believe in him. And then took all of Jesus's righteousness and put it on all those who would believe in him. It was a a court procedure where Jesus died so that we would be made right with God if we trust in what he has done. If you have questions about that, don't let them linger. Trust God. Trust in what Christ has done. And brothers and sisters in Christ church, we we don't follow Jesus because it's the easy life. I think most of us who've walked with Jesus for a few years have already discovered that. We follow Jesus because it's the only life. The only way to true hope and joy is found in him. So as we're united to him in faith, we must die to ourselves. And, and face that, that's actually good news because where have you gotten yourself in life? We, we must turn away from sin and turn to him, giving ourselves fully over to him and making his cross our only hope of ever being saved. That is what it means to be a Christian. It means to stop trusting in self and trust in him. It means forsaking any merit of our own and putting our faith in what he has done. It means picking up our cross denying ourselves, following after him, knowing that in him we will have fullness of joy, both now and forever. So listen, any Christian preacher anywhere, TV, radio, whatever, who tells you that if you believe in Christ, you will be happy and healthy and wealthy in this life is telling you a lie from the pit of hell. He's selling you a cheap gospel that's really no gospel at all. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is not about believing in yourself or being a better you or or getting physically healthy or financially blessed or relationally at peace. The true gospel is something so much better than that. It's about fixing your eyes on Jesus and finding in him something so much better than physical health. So much more eternal than fleeting riches, so much more peaceful than any relationship you can build in this life. Beware, church family, of what people may say. Believe the words of Jesus. As Christians, we are destined for persecution, just as Jesus was destined to meet the cross. But mark the words of the gospel. Just as Jesus was destined for the cross, He was destined for glory. 
and united to him by faith as we partake in his sufferings here and now, we will most assuredly partake in his glory forever and ever and ever and ever. If you think about our life, those of you who are good at math, think about just like a point. Then you think about one of those rays that goes on indefinitely. God has called us to suffering here, but he's called us to glory forever. That's our destiny. And so as one author writes, in the end, Paul here turns what is called the health and wealth gospel, that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy here. He turns that on its head in these first five verses. And he actually contends that the church will not be spiritually healthy unless it goes through trials and persecutions. As we are matured in our faith, we will indeed be afflicted by the world. So there is here a very real threat of suffering. It needs to be persevered through. We can't give up. It will threaten our faith. But we see here also, Christian, the great blessing of suffering. As we suffer in Christ, we are partaking in what he has done for us. We're following the pattern of our Savior. And where does that pattern lead, church? It leads to glory. So Christian, if you experience opposition from the world, take heart. Heaven's coming. Paul desperately wants the Thessalonians to understand this and not give up, no matter how hard it might get. And so in verse 5, because affliction is inevitable for these new Thessalonian believers, he just repeats, I can't bear it any longer. I'm just going to explain to you, that's why I had to send Timothy to you. I needed to be sure that you wouldn't be like that parable of the sower that Jesus told. Like You wouldn't be like that seed that's thrown on rocky soil and springs up in excitement. Yes, I love Jesus, I love the gospel, but then is withered and scorched by the sun of persecution, beaten down by trial, giving up on Jesus. He wants to be sure that the tempter, Satan himself, who we talked about two weeks ago from verses 17 through 20 in chapter 2, that Satan would not lead them astray, that they would not abandon Christ just for temporary relief from persecution. And so we see a threat of suffering, of affliction. In verses 6 through 10, we see our second and final point, the faith of the Christian. Look there in verse 6. I think this is one of the most joyful passages we see in any of Paul's letters. I think here we get kind of just an emotional overload and outpouring from the apostle. Because he says he was burdened, he was anxious, he was worried. But now, hey, hey guys, now Timothy has come back. And he's told me that you're persevering in your affliction. He's told me that the gospel has been rooted down deep in your hearts, that you haven't fallen away. So I'm not uncertain anymore. There's no more I can't bear it any longer. I have so much joy right now. There's so much relief going on in my heart. I'm rejoicing. Paul's writing this letter pretty much immediately after Timothy got back. It's like he's, he's getting Timothy's report. He's just like, okay, okay, okay. He's starting to write down this letter. We feel his outburst of joy. Timothy's report had been good news to his ears. Not only were the Thessalonians persevering, but they were actually completely of the same heart as Paul. Just as he was overflowing with love and yearning to see them, he finds out they feel the same way. They remember him kindly every day. They just constantly long to see him. Before he was anxious, now he's comforted. 
in everything God is sending his way and all his continued affliction, he's encouraged in this. His faith is wrapped up in the faith of the Thessalonians. They're his spiritual children. He's their spiritual father. And so he's just delighted and overjoyed that they're persevering in the truth. In verse eight, he says, for now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, just like that Portland headlight in the midst of a storm, he's seeing the Thessalonian Christians standing fast in the storm of persecution and he's overjoyed. Church, the Christian cannot grit and grind his way through persecution. The Christian, yes, must stand fast, but he must not stand fast in his own strength, in his own ability, in his gifting, in his own secured finances. He must stand fast. How? In the Lord. So I wonder, Christian, when you face opposition, whatever that might look like, and you most surely will, when you face suffering that is tempting you away from God, where are you finding your security? Where do you find your steady foothold in life? Are you standing fast in your faith because your faith is built on Christ the rock? Now, of course, we're in church. So you know the right answer. Jesus. Jesus is the right answer. We won't dispute that, of course, it's the Lord on whom we must stand. But let's examine our hearts together, family. So remember, church is not the place to just look good and give pat Sunday school answers. I say that almost every Sunday, and it's because we aren't tempted Monday through Saturday to come to church that way. But that's not the, this isn't the place for that. Maybe a job interview would be good for that. But church is where we must analyze our hearts in the x-ray of Scripture. See our helplessness. Help one another. Cling to Christ. So, so church, if you feel shaken this morning in your faith, if you feel deceived by persecutions or allurements of the world, if you feel bombarded in your faith, how can you hope to stand fast this week, this month, until Jesus comes back? Where is your foothold? Well, here's a good diagnostic test for you and for me. Where do you tend to be anxious and fearful in your life? What area of your life do you guard at all costs so it's, it's not broken or damaged? or Whatever thing that is in your life, maybe that's where, maybe that's where you're tempted to find security instead of Christ. It could be your health. It could be your success in the workplace. Your good image in front of family and friends, uh, the way you live at home and your possessions and your security in your house, your, your kids and they, the way they represent you and their reputations. Maybe it's other sins and temptations that you just find security in when you're in despair. Church, if something like that is where you build your foundation in times of affliction, you have an incredibly shaky foothold. I mean, I got that reminder this past week, right? Going 55 miles an hour down Route 9, just kind of zoning out a little bit. It wasn't my fault. 
but I was zoning out. And in all of three seconds, seeing my life flash before my eyes as I was hit by an oncoming car and sent flipping off the road. If I, if I was ever tempted to place my trust in my health or my physical strength, I can assure you that was a little bit shaken this week. Church, we will be called to stand fast in affliction because we're Christians. So how will we do that? How will we endure? We will only stand fast if we stand in Christ. If we acknowledge our sin and helplessness and lean only on him, giving ourselves over to him. And remember, Christian, see who Paul thanks for the Thessalonians and they're standing fast. Who is that in verse nine? For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? If it was up to the Thessalonians to stand fast, you would expect Paul to see like, thank you so much. You're making my ministry fruitful here. But he says, thank you, God, that they're standing fast. What does that mean? It means, Christian, that it's not up to you to muster enough faith to keep yourself standing fast. Of course, you need to repent of sin. You need to turn away. You need to focus after Christ. You need to mutilate the temptations that come to you and turn away from them and mortify them. But you can never stand fast for more than 10 minutes on your own power. Next Sunday, I wish we were singing it this Sunday, but it will work next Sunday too. We'll be singing the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Listen to the first verse. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter, who Paul has mentioned in verse 5, when the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Church, our foundation, the thing we are established on, the place our faith rests is Christ alone. We stand fast on Jesus the rock. He's our only foundation. And so afflictions, what of them? What must afflictions do to us? They must drive us to the rock. They must remind us of the foundation on which we stand. Charles Spurgeon, who was himself no stranger to persecution and personal tragedy, once said it like this. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He had learned to embrace any persecution, any suffering that would just drive him closer to Christ. In Jesus, he knew he would find all the pleasures he could ever want. So Christian, is that the way that you're thinking about your trials this morning? The persecution you might experience for being a Christian, the opposition you receive from others. Are you just trying to bottle it up and get your head down and persevere through it on your own? Or in the midst of sorrow and grief, do you see the merciful hand of God Severe mercy, though it may be, reminding you, causing you to throw yourself once again on Christ. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for strength. Let's establish our faith in that wonderful Savior because he's coming back.
and it's going to be soon. So let's stand fast until he does. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to be unequivocally yours. We don't want just to be Christians on Sunday. We want our whole lives to shout forth to the world that you are worthy, that you are king. And as we do, we know we will face affliction. And so I pray for this church family that you would make us ready that you would make us bold and courageous and joyful, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven in glory. Lord, may we as a church suffer well with you so that we might also be glorified with you. Help us. We love you. Thank you for the firm foundation we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.